Welcome to the shit show. Hello, my squirrel friends. So today is Thursday on the Hot Mess Witchy Express podcast. And uh, before I get into today's subject, uh, I want to talk about a little bit about my life experience. I'm beginning to realize that the more I talk about other things besides, you know, like the um, main idea of the pot, like the episode, I feel like I get more uh, user interaction. So, or listener, I should say, not user, listener. Um, so, uh, as you guys know, I have been very depressed lately. <laughs> I have not hid- hidden this um, from my listeners. I have hidden it on TikTok a little bit, um, but I feel like when I talk uh, on this podcast, I feel like it's harder to hide the lie, I guess. Um, so... Uh, as you guys know, I've been a substitute teacher for the past couple months. And then, you know, with the summer, (laughs) no substitutes are needed. So mommy need money. Um, (laughs) uh, so, you know, I've kind of been in my feelings and feeling sorry for myself. Uh, and I got a message today from a friend who was like, Hey, do you mind watching my kids so I can go to my appointment? And I'm like, yeah, sure. No problem. Now, mind you, I only have two kids and my two kids are pretty good about like leaving me alone when I'm in my feelings. Like if I'm laying in the bed, um, they genuinely don't come to bother me. Um, which is a good and a bad thing. The good thing is, you know, I can be in my feelings as much as I want. Uh, the bad thing is my depression can take over and I can really be in my feelings. Uh, (laughs) so I was like, you know what? Yeah, that'll be good because I haven't done anything for the kids yet for the summer and I'm really worried. I'm not going to be able to do the things I want to do because I don't have a job to pay for extra stuff. Right. Um, and if you do follow my TikTok, you know that I have baby fever really bad, uh, sometimes. Well, uh, if you ever want to stop feeling sorry for yourself and get some energy, um, watch somebody else's kids. Uh, (laughs) so she dropped off all four of her kids. Yeah, four. Most of my friends around here don't have one or two kids. Um, I've noticed that the three people that I talk to the most have four kids, two of which have a set of twins. Uh, anyway, so she drops them off and instantly I am no longer able to lay in the bed and be in my feelings, right? So the first thing's first, I have to get dressed because I feel weird about having someone else's kids in my house and not have underwear on. Um, (laughs) I mean, it's one thing, like, I mean, it's not obviously, it's not, I'm walking around with no pants and no underwear, but like if I'm wearing shorts and I don't have underwear on and I'm watching someone else's kids, it feels weird. Does that make sense? I don't know. Maybe I'm just weird. Anyway, I digress. Not five minutes after they're here, it sounds like a elephant trail. <laughs> like it's boo 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 right? Just like a myriad of noises. And it stayed like that for most of the time they were here. Um <laughs> and again, I don't mind watching other people's kids. Um, but it reminded me of two things. One, it could always be worse and not, you know, comparing my life to someone else in that way. But, um, at least I only have two kids that will leave me the fuck alone. Right. Uh, but also like it reminded me, you really don't want to have more than two kids. You really don't want to go through that baby phase again. 
you know? Like, I really think that (laughs) having them over really does kind of help, like, put things in perspective for me. Because A, it could always be worse, right? I don't know if any of you ever were able to read that story growing up with your parents where it was like, it could be worse. The guy's complaining about the roof leaking, but, you know, there could be a giant hole in the ceiling. Like, it was like... I don't remember it. Now I'm going to have to look it up. And you guys know I have no shame. Um, I have no shame Googling stuff while I'm on the podcast. Uh, it could always be worse. It, it's a Yiddish folktale um, uh, by Margot Zemach. And it's about a hardworking man who lives in an extremely small house with his wife and kids. And he keeps going to his rabbi and asking for advice. And, like, the main part of the story is is it could always be worse, right? You think it's bad, but it really always could be worse. Um, So I am, you know, old as shit. And so, (laughs) but I still remember reading that book when I was a kid. So, like, having her kids over here and driving me absolutely fucking batty um, really reminded me that, you know, it's really not that bad. It could always be worse. So, um, that's my little spiel for the day, you know? Um, I'm not in my feelings anymore today. I can't promise that when I wake up tomorrow that I won't be in my feelings again. Um, but it was really, and plus it was nice to socialize with her. That's part of, also part of my problem is, uh, 2020 really did a number on me as far as like my social skills. <laughs> like I, I can put on that customer service voice, right? I can go to work and I can do my job and I can... And I'm fine. But for some reason, like when it comes to socializing with my friends, I now have more anxiety about it. And it's crazy because it used to not be that bad. I could handle going to a friend's house for a little while and not get the urge to like want to run away. Right. But now I do like and it doesn't matter if I'm there for a couple of minutes or like an hour. So like I have one friend whom I love dearly. Uh, I'm not going to name drop, but She's one of my friends that has four kids and I used to love going to her house all the time, especially when my husband was deployed. I spent a lot of time with her. Um, but now going, thinking about going to her house gives me anxiety, not because I don't want to see her or her kids, but there is four kids over there. The oldest is as old as my youngest and they have a lot of animals like I do. And it's just a lot of chaotic, chaotic energy that my anxiety can't handle anymore. <laughs> so yeah, uh, I, if it wasn't for TikTok and this podcast, I'd probably be a recluse. Uh, but I digress. I'm getting off way too much off of the topic I wanted to talk about today. So um, I think my topic for today is going to be a little bit different again than the true crime. Um, just because, uh, the newest movie about this couple came out and like, I am obsessed. Okay. So today we're going to talk about like the occult and Ed and Lorraine Warren. Um, I think one of the reasons why I'm so obsessed with the two of them is because, you know, people, even though they watched, all the Conjuring movies and all the Annabelle movies, they forget that these two people actually existed. And not only did they exist, but Ed Warren was the only non-ordained demonologist recognized by the Catholic Church. 
And people who do not grow up Catholic do not understand like how much of a big deal that is, right? Because the Catholic Church basically thinks that everybody is the devil, right? <laughs> like if you're not a Catholic, you're the devil. That's, at least that's the, the, the feeling I got when I was growing up in the church. So for this couple to be recognized as demonologists by the church was huge, um, especially in the time frame, which was in the 60s, right? Um, so, you know, we've all watched, um, you know, the Conjuring movies, um, the most recent one, The Devil Made Me Do It, right? Um, and we saw that Ed and Lorraine, um, looked over, you know, thousands of cases around the globe. Um, they were together for a really long time. Um, but I wanted to like talk a little bit about Ed Warren, Ed Warren and Lorraine, and then talk a little bit about like their, um, some of their cases, right? Um, so first of all, Ed Warren actually wrote a book, um, called The Demonologist, The Extraordinary Career of Ed and Lorraine Warren. Um, now, when Ed was five years old, he actually saw a light that grew until he saw the family's landlady who had actually died. Um, and then Ed also claims that he uh, would have dreams of dead relatives he never met. Um which I think is really interesting. And then Lorraine, she discovered her abilities when she was a child as well, around the age of 12. Now, um, if you want a nerd alert from me, um, <laughs> so the first Conjuring movie, Lorraine is actually in that movie. Um, unfortunately, Ed was uh, had passed away by that point, um, but Lorraine is actually in front. If you, if you watch the scene... Um, in the conjuring where the mom of the haunted family is attending one of the Warrens, um, what do you call it? Lectures. They pan to the audience. And at first you see this little lady. Oop, I just hit my mic. I hope you guys didn't hear it. Um, this little lady sitting in front with her hair kind of up. Um, that's Lorraine. <laughs> that's the actual Lorraine Warren. And that always cracks me up. But anyways, um, yeah. Um, So Ed and Lorraine actually started dating as teenagers uh, in 1944. Um, they were both just about 16 years old. Uh, Ed was a usher at a movie theater. Um, and then soon after they began dating, uh, Ed actually went off to fight in World War II. Uh, they were married in 1945. Uh, Ed was 17 years old and he enlisted in the Navy. Uh, he had only been a deployed for a total of four months when he was sent back home for, on a 30-day survivor's leave, quote-unquote, after his ship went down in the North Atlantic Sea. It was during that break that Ed and Lorraine actually got married, and then he returned to the war. Later, they ended up getting um, pregnant and having a daughter named Judy. Now, after the war, both Ed and Lorraine actually thought that they were going to be, like, artists, right? Like, landscapes. Um, but um, they spent about five years going around the United States painting and investigating haunting houses, right? 
So at first, during her early experiences as a clairvoyant, Lorraine didn't believe in ghosts, which I find incredibly ironic, right? Um, she thought that they were kind of overactive imagination from people like to get attention. Um, now, uh, in 1952, Ed and Lorraine Warren actually founded the New England Society for Psychic Research. So think about that. Just a few years before, Lorraine was like, eh, people do this for attention. But she actually, like, really believed it, right? Um, they also created a occult museum in their uh, home in Monroe, Connecticut, um, we actually see this referenced in all the, the Conjuring movies, right? And even uh, a couple of the Annabelle movies where they put Annabelle in the case. Um, but we'll get more on the museum in a minute. Um, so one interesting thing about Lorraine being like the fucking clairvoyant, crazy, awesome person that she was. She actually like got her like abilities tested, right? Because if I can't remember which one it is, I think it's the second one where you really start to see the Conjuring movies, where you really start to see like how they talk about how people were so skeptical about the Warrens, right? Um, so Lorraine was tested by a Dr. Thelma Moss. Um, she was a psychologist and a parapsychologist working at UCLA. Uh, and she tested. Lorraine's clairvoyance and was quote to have said it was far above average. Again, this is all in that demonologist book that I mentioned earlier. So I definitely think it's worth a read. Um, here's one thing that, um, really affected me about these two. Um, so they never charged anybody for their investigations. So, you have to understand these people would go global, right? Like it wasn't just like a drive, a few hours drive. Like some of their cases took them all over the world, right? As we saw in the second Conjuring movie where they were in England and they never charged money for these. But what they did earn money from was like giving lectures at colleges, um, giving, uh, licensing their rights to their stories for film, TV, and book projects. So that's how they made their living. Like they never, and I thought that was so awesome that like they really, they really did want to help people. Right. Um, and according to the demonologist, the Warrens actually really believed that their main role was educators because they saw in the late sixties, uh, that growing interest in the occult, and the dark phenomena and they hoped that through their lectures they might help people um discourage people from exploring the occult in the first place now obviously i'm a pagan so i'm very into the occult right but there are certain things even i stay away from um like i i will never touch an ouija, a ouija board i will never own one that is just something that I believe because I feel like that's a door that once you open it, you don't know who you're letting in until it's too late, you know? And I feel like that's a lot, how a lot of some of these cases get started. It's because these fucking idiots are like, oh, let's talk to a ghost. And then <laughs> they let in some kind of Beelzebub demon and they're like, oh, I don't I didn't know this was going to happen. Okay. Sure. You didn't Cletus. That's why, like, some of us older witches, 
um, refer to uh, newcomers as baby witches, right? Because we're like, you're doing shit that I, as an experienced witch, would never touch. Like, ever. I mean, when I was a baby witch, I remember thinking that I was hot shit, right? That, like... I knew everything and I saw everything. I didn't know jack shit. I still learn today, right? Like people just don't know. But um, I'm gonna say I'm gonna stop right here, and then we're gonna talk about some of the uh, Ed and Lorraine cases as well as the museum that they had. Hello, squirrel friends, and welcome back. So I'm going to talk about four of the Ed and Lorraine Warren cases. Um, I'm going to try and keep it short and sweet. Um, I will say that there are other cases available online. You can go to Tony, T-O-N-Y, Spira, S-P-E-R-A, dot com. Um, that is Ed and Lorraine Warren's um, son-in-law. Um, because Ed passed away in 2006, um, and then their occult museum closed in 2018, and then, unfortunately, Lorraine Warren died April 18th, 2019. Um, and so the, the current current position of the occult museum is that it is permanently closed. Now, I'm thinking that they're going to eventually move it, because I know in 2018 there was a zoning law issue, um, so I think that that was the big deal. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about these four cases in chronological order. A um, couple of them you're probably somewhat familiar with. Some people might, might not be. Um, when I talk about this, people look at me like, you know all this stuff? I'm like, well, yeah, I know bits and pieces of a lot of stuff. Because I'm true crime, haunting, spiritual obsessed. <laughs> um, <laughs> Alright, so first up we have uh, Annabelle. Now most people associate Annabelle with the like porcelain eye doll that you see in the movies. Um, actually that is not the actual Annabelle doll. The Annabelle doll is actually a Raggedy Ann doll. Um, my daughter used to have one so this one makes it nice and creepy for me. Um, <laughs> Uh, so in 1968, you know, that part of the story was true that a mom found the, the doll in a hobby store and gave it to her nurse daughter, Donna, for a present uh, for graduating her nursing school. Um, she lived in an apartment with a roommate named Angie. Um, so Donna um, didn't give it a second thought at first when the doll first arrived, but days later, both Donna and Angie started to notice that there was something kind of weird about the doll. It would move around the house. Um, at first, it would just change position, but then over time, you know, it would actually like move to other rooms. Um, Donna would say that sometimes the doll would have like their legs crossed, the arms folded, uh, sometimes it would even be standing, or if Donna would leave the doll on the couch before work, she would return and it would be in her room and the door would be closed. Um, so the doll was not only moving, but the doll would also write like help us or help Lou on like parchment paper, like it was written by a small child. Um, so that immediately creeped Donna out, right? So then one night Donna came home to find the doll had moved again, but um, she had like what appeared to be like drops on its the back of its hands and its chest. 
Um, and Donna had no idea where it came from. Um, so she contacted a medium, um, and the Donna was introduced to the spirit of Annabelle Higgins. Um, so, you know, this part in the conjuring is all true. Um, she reports that Annabelle was a young girl that resided on the property before the apartments were built. Um, and that was that. Um, now Lou was the one that, you know, the help Lou, uh, was friends with Donna and Angie and, um, Lou was, was never fond of the doll. You know, he even warned, um, Donna a couple times that like, nah, something's not, something's not right about this doll. <laughs> right. Um, but, uh, the, you know, the two roommates, Donna and Angie, they try to accept the doll spirit and, you know, however, you know, malicious and horrible, violent shit started happening. Um, like, uh, Lou reports that the doll tried to strangle him to death. <laughs> um, because <laughs> that's fun, right? So, um... You know, the Warrens, they get involved and they speak to Donna, Angie, and Lou uh, and come to the uh, conclusion that the doll was not possessed by some little girl, you know, that lived in the apartment buildings, but had actually been like this malicious, uh, inhuman spirit. Um, so that's nice and creepy, right? <laughs> um, so, but this inhuman spirit started to prey on the girl's, you know, emotions. Um, uh, so they tried to exercise it right in the apartment, but the Warrens still um, took the doll home, right? Um, but then the Warrens started to see stuff from this doll, right? Like they got home and Ed put the doll in a chair next to his desk and the doll levitated. <laughs> Which to me, I'd be like, "Goodbye." <laughs> so the Warrens actually locked it up in the, in the glass case that you actually see in the movies, where it says "positively do not open." Um, but again, it was a, you know, uh, a Raggedy Ann, not a, um, not a porcelain idol. Um, so. Uh, since the case was built, Annabelle no longer appeared to move, but she is thought to be the responsible of a death of a young man who came to the museum on a motorcycle with his girlfriend. According to Ed, uh, the young man heard the doll's account, the, the, the story of the doll, and went up and began to bang on the case, insisting that the doll can put scratches on people. Uh, that he would also want to be scratched, you know? And so Ed was like, nah, son, you need to leave. So on the way home, this young man and his girlfriend were laughing and making fun of the doll when all of a sudden he lost control of his motorcycle and went head first into a tree. The young man was killed instantly and his girlfriend survived, but was in the hospital for over a year. Um, when, you know, they interviewed the woman and asked her what happened, she explained that they were laughing about the doll when they lost control of the motorcycle. Um... And, you know, this is why Ed warns people, you know, don't challenge evil and that no more man, no man is more powerful than Satan. Um, 
and again, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about this for a second. So, like, I again, I am spiritual. I am pagan. I don't believe in a one god, one devil kind of thing, but I do believe in evil, and I do think that it's important to not challenge evil or be like, "Yo, I'm better than you." You know what I mean? Like, I just I feel like that's asking for trouble. You know, uh, I I I do. Um, I do hope that if they do move the occult museum, that they do the same thing that they were doing in the Warren home and that having a priest come and bless the property. Um, again, not saying that I believe in a unifying one God, blah, blah, blah. But um, I do believe that if you are facing something evil, that you should constantly cleanse the space. Um, okay, so the next one I want I want to talk about is the Perrin family. Um, they were the ones that the first, uh, conjuring was talked about. Um, so in January, 1971, the Perrin family did move into a 14 room farmhouse in Rhode Island where Carol and Roger and their five daughters immediately started to notice something strange happening after they first moved in. Um, you know, they would smell like the rotting meat smell, um, Things went to move on its own, like a broom or a kettle. Um, you know, just, just small little things like maybe dirt on the floor that wasn't there. Um, so Caroline allegedly researched the home and, you know, um, realized that this has been the same thing for eight generations of family this house and that many of them died under weird circumstances. Like several of the children had drowned in a nearby Creek or that one was murdered. Um, and the spirit that was depicted in the film, uh, Beth Sheba was the worst of them all, you know? Um, now there was actually a person named Beth, Beth Sheba, Sherman, who lived on the Perrin's property in like the 1800s. Um, now they believe that Bathsheba was a Satanist and there was evidence uh, that she had been involved in the death of a neighbor's child. However, she was never charged. Um, according to Andrea, the family experienced other spirits as well. Uh, and their beds would rise off the floor and she claimed that her father would enter the basement and feel a cold sinking, stinking presence behind him. Um, and they often stayed away from the dirt floored cellar. Um, now here's something that they didn't show in the movie. So, uh, the family actually didn't live in the house for a couple months. Like it shows right um they actually lived there for about 10 years and the warrens made multiple trips to investigate and at one point during one of these investigations lorraine actually conducted or attempted to conduct a seance to contact the spirits that were in the house um now during the seance caroline the mom became very possessed speaking in tongues and rising from the ground in her chair um andrea claims that she had seen the seance and she thought she said that she thought she was going to pass out um and then after the seance roger actually kicked the warrens out and worried about his wife's mental health right 
Now, according to Andrea, the the family continued to live in the house due to financial instability until 1980 when they were moved out. And the spirits were silenced and the haunting ceased. So that means the entire fucking time they lived there, they had these hauntings. You know, again, this is why, like, I think it's so important that if people see that these movies are based on true life events, that they should actually look into them. Because, like... In the movie, it makes it seem like Lorraine did this thing, right? And they unpossessed Caroline and the family was able to move out right away and lived happy lives. But that's just not what happened. What actually happened was they were haunted the entire fucking time they were there. (laughs) Uh, And that's and that's crazy to me, right? Because like you would think, oh, happy ending. No, no, no. Um, so, but I do think it's cool that, like, you can, you can go online on the, uh, on Tony Spira's website and actually see pictures of the parent family, pictures of the house, the actual house. Um, I, I, I always love seeing little stuff like that. I'm gonna take a drink because, like, I'm apparently doing a lot of talking this time. Um, and this is going to be a little bit longer of an episode, but that's okay because it's got to last you till Monday, right? <sighs> okay. All right. <laughs> um, so the next one that I'm going to talk about that you guys have probably seen, I'm trying to think, I think it again was the second one, the second Conjuring movie. You see that Ed and Lorraine actually did an investigation of the Long Island Amityville house, Right. So that's the one I'm going to talk about next. So that one was in 1974. Uh, November 13th, 1974, Ronald DeFeo Jr. Um, burst into a bar, a local bar, and screamed that his parents had been shot and killed. Police then went to investigate and discovered the bodies of six members of the DeFeo family. The mother, the mother, the mother, am I talking in Long Island now? Sorry. The mother, the father, and four of the, uh, four of the DeFeo children were found face down, shot in the back of their heads. Now, Ronald claimed he wasn't home during the murders and he had only discovered the bodies of his parents prior to arriving to the bar. Uh, after police officers found a gun case for a 35 caliber Marlin rifle in Ronald's room, he confessed, Right. Uh, And then after a really long trial, Ronald DeFeo was found guilty of killing his family and he was sentenced to six uh, consecutive life sentences. But there has never been one good, solid explanation of how one person by themselves could take the lives of six family members in the dead of night. They, they, They suggest that the killing was around 3.15 in the morning and no one heard a fucking thing. Now... Uh, December 18th, 1980 or 1975, the Lutz family moves into the DeFeo home. Now, it had only been about 13 months since the DeFeo murders, um, but George and Kathleen Lutz thought that the, the Dutch colonial was a lovely home and that they couldn't, uh, they couldn't believe they were only paying $80,000 for it, which I am like, what? What? But anyway, that's a whole different topic. Um, and they actually moved out 28 days after buying the house and moving in, which sucks. 
Um, now, a Catholic priest came while the Lutz family was unpacking. And he claims that when he went to the second floor entering the bedroom, which had formerly belonged to Mark and John DeFeo, he was like blessing the house with some holy water. And at some point he heard, get out. Right. And so like, he was like, fuck this, which is a normal human response. (laughs) Um, But the priest didn't tell them about the voice. All he said was, don't use the upstairs room as a bedroom and don't let anybody sleep there. Uh, what? You're not going to tell them? Like, why? Um, but, you know, Kathleen did turn it into a sewing room. So, um, the family claims that they felt very strange sensations the, the, from the first night, right? Um, George said that he spent all his time feeding the fireplace because he was constantly cold. Uh, Kathy's health drastically declined. Uh, the Lutz's daughter began spending more of her time in her room playing with an imaginary friend. Um, she did have a red-eyed pig called Jody who could transform not only shape but size. Um, they began to get these like foul smelling odors that would come from different parts of the house and like these black scenes would appear on the toilets and ceramic fixtures and i know for me that would drive me insane because like i'm lazy but like to a point like if i start to smell something i'm like a bloodhound i gotta clean until i find it um kathy would also describe this like green gelatin substance that would appear throughout the house and like hundreds of flies would appear in the sewing room Um, and George also claimed that he would wake up at 3.15 a.m., which was the time that they assumed the, uh, murders took place, right? The DeFeo murders. Um, so, um, the family walked around the house reciting the Lord's Prayer with a crucifix to try and, like, get this stuff to stop, right? And they heard, like, will you stop? And I'd be like, I'm sorry. I'd be out of there at that point, right? Um, but the final night, according to the Lutzes, was the worst because the bangings would sound like marching bands coming out of the house and the furniture was moving all over the place. Um, and the family fled the house and went to Kathy's mother's house. Um, so 20 days after the Lutzes fled that's when Ed and Lorraine stepped in, right? Um, And a bunch of different people showed up. Like, it was not just them. Uh, It was Marvin Scott, who was a reporter uh, for Channel 5 News. Uh, There was also other investigators, parapsychologists, everything, right? Um, So during the investigation, Ed was physically pushed through a door or pushed to the floor while he was doing some religious things in the basement. And Lorraine also felt like a huge demonic presence. Um, And the research team was also able to capture an image of the spirit that appeared as a little boy peering from the second floor. Um, And one part of the story that is true was the John Ketchum 
Uh, so John Ketchum did own the land and he was a black magician and he had a cottage on the land prior to the Dutch colonial. Uh, and John requested that his remains be buried on that property and they're still there. <laughs> uh, now the Shinnecock Indians had an enclosure on this land too and um, there it was used to house the sick and the mad and they were left in these enclosures to die um, and the Warrens believe that the suffering there had left the property with a very negative energy and a very dark history um, so here, here's where it gets interesting so the Warrens believe that these energies directly, you know, affected the Defoe's and the Lutzes. And so this house sold it for $80,000 in 1975. It sold for $950,000 in 2010. <laughs> like, Jesus, right? Like, that's a lot of money almost a million dollars for this little itty bitty colonial and now according to this it's on the on the market again but I'm gonna look it was on the market in 2016 um but I don't see I don't see anything else Amityville let me look it up Oh, no, somebody bought it in 2016. Wah, wah, wah. I totally would buy it. Not even gonna fucking lie about that. Um. It's a beautiful house. Um, the 5,000 square foot house has a modern kitchen, finished basements, and a high-end security system. It also has a large boathouse, a bow slip, and two, co two car garage. I mean, hey. But yeah, so um, there is a house for everybody, right? Uh, I, I would move in, but I'd probably like not buy it because I'd probably move right the fuck out. Um, so I realized how long I've been on here, but so I'm going to try and make this last one really quick. Um, so if you're too scared to watch uh, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, I'm going to talk about um, what the last one's about. Hold on. Oh, sorry. I'm really thirsty today. All right. So this one happened in February 1981. Um... This is called the Demon Murder Trial, right? So 19-year-old Arnie Johnson stabbed his landlord, Alan Bono, to death after a day of drinking and partying that ended at Bono's apartment at a dog kennel that he ran in uh, Connecticut. It was the first murder ever recorded in the town, and Johnson was put on trial for first-degree manslaughter. Um, now... At the Connecticut Superior Court, just a few days before Halloween, Johnson's lawyer, Martin Manella, entered a defense of not guilty by reason of demonic possession. 
Um, it turns out that a year earlier, the 11 year old brother of Johnson's fiance, who's also on scene for the Bono murder, was treated for demonic possession by various priests and Ed and Lorraine Warren. Um, um, Johnson was involved in the exorcism and claims that he was affected by it, which we see in the movie. Um, Oh, I'm so glad this is shorter than I thought it was. Okay, sorry. Um, so, uh, with support from the Warrens, right? Um, Manila was prepared to prove that not only did the demons exist, but that they physically manipulated Johnson into committing the murder. The judge threw out the defense, though. And the lawyer had to fall back on the more conventional tact of self-defense. And Johnson was ruled guilty of manslaughter and served a five-year prison term. Now, of course, in the movie, you know, it, it takes a lot more than that. And they actually do claim that they proved to the court that there were demons. Um, but obviously, in real life, that is not what happened. Um... So, Tony Spira um, worked with Ed and Lorraine for 30 years, right before they died. Um, And he is now the director of the uh, New England Society for Psychic Research. Um, Which I think is awesome. Uh, and he's also the head curator of the museum. But again, like I said, the museum was closed in 2018 due to zoning. And then when, uh, Lorraine died in 2019, you know, they, um, they said they were permanently closed. I hope that that's not the case, uh, because like you can go. So that's one thing I wanted to talk about before I ended the podcast today. So if you go to TonySpira.com, uh, you can click on case files, Um, which is where I got a lot of my information for today. Um, but if you all want to really look at some of the cool stuff, they have these video archives, right? And they have like videos of the Amityville case. They have, uh, Seekers of the Supernatural Lessons. Um, and they also have a tour given by Ed Warren of the Warren Occult Museum. Um, They also have several other videos, footages of the Warrens. Uh, They also have um, Hollywood, you know, and the Warrens. So, like, these are, like, from the movie set of uh, The Conjuring. Uh, And then they also have archives of, like, the killer doll and uh, another, um, museum tour. Um, they also have a full video archive on YouTube and it's the official Ed and Lorraine Warren channel. Um, and on it, it has all these, uh, uploads of the live Warren museum, um, honoring Ed and Lorraine, um, just stuff like that. Uh, Hold on. There's a... Oh, there's an Annabelle Annabelle one. Um, 
just all kinds of really cool videos on there. Um, but if nothing else, you should at least buy the book uh, about Ed and Lorraine Warren. And again, the name of that book um, is the the demonologist the extraordinary career of ed and lorraine warren by uh gerard brittle um now ed warren actually did write a couple books um but let me see here i had it it's a book series. Uh, it's like, um, let me see here. It's True Hauntings from an Old New England Cemetery by Ed and Lorraine. Ghost Hunters, the true stories from the world's most famous demonologists. The Haunted, One Family's Nightmare, In a Dark Place, Werewolf, a true story about demonic possession, and Satan's Harvest. Now, these are all written by Ed and Lorraine Warren. I definitely think that you should take a look. Um, there is a Kindle version of each of these books. Um, you can buy the set or you can buy them one at a time. It's up to you. But I definitely think that these two lived a very extraordinary life. And I am super glad that we got to like talk about a little bit of them today. Honestly, I am a tad obsessed with these two. I think they were awesome individuals. Um, having said that, I'm going to end the podcast here. So as always, if you can't love yourself, how in the hell are you going to love anybody else? Can I get an amen? Amen. All right, y'all. I'll see you on Monday. Have a great weekend.